Hello again and welcome to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature here at Campion College. On the 23rd of November, 1963, an old man stepped out of a strange blue box and took his first steps into what would become one of the most enduring serialised narratives in television history. That man was known only as the Doctor, and over the course of the following five and a half decades, his, now her, journeys have delighted generations of viewers, all of whom have been invited to travel alongside this mysterious stranger through time and space in a machine called the TARDIS, a consistently anachronistic blue police box that is famously bigger on the inside. In the series Doctor Who, most everything beside this stranger and his box is up for grabs. One week it might be a cerebral sci-fi tale, the next a B-grade monster of the week, the next a jaunt into a historical period piece. It can be funny, scary, wistful, ominous. The companions that travel with the Doctor have changed. The Doctor, him or herself, has altered at least 13 times. The shape and structure of the show is constantly in flux, spanning the introduction of colour television, transforming itself from a serialised program to a more prestige drama, and having at least two distinct periods, classic and new Who, which can be bickered over endlessly some of which we might do today, to discuss the glorious pastiche of sci-fi, historical fiction and adventure that is Doctor Who, its themes, its abiding features and its legacy, I'm joined today by my fellow lecturer in history and philosophy here at Campion College, Dr. Jeremy Bell. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So, I firstly have to check your bona fides, so uh, some questions. What is a Dalek? Answer the question, Jeremy. I'm not going to proceed. I'm pausing simply because <laughs> I think there are at least two different possible answers. Oh, um, you're already winning points. That's great. That's okay. Um, well, okay. To begin with, a Dalek is not a mere machine. Excellent. There is a creature inside There's it. There's a, a biological creature. component. Yes, there is indeed. According to one version, the biological component is uh, the mutated descendant of a race of humanoid beings called Dals. I'm going there by the William Hartnell original Dalek episode there. Wow. Then, according to a different story, uh, they are a partly deliberately genetically engineered, I don't know what word to use here, descendant or para-descendant of um, the Khalids. Um, <laughs> oh my God. There are no notes, by the way, for, for listeners. No notes in front of Jeremy right now. This is all off the dome. This is fantastic. I, I didn't even... I mean, I did bone up on some things, but not on Dalek history for oh this, but uh, I'm simply going by what I immediately remember. I had other questions, but we don't need any more, because that's, that's the blanket coverage. Any nerds who are going to come at us for not knowing what we're talking about, you've just ushered them away. So thank you very much. <laughs> I, I should jump into the real questions then. Uh, Doctor Who is a show that is almost as malleable as it's possible to be uh, while still retaining the through line of a one remarkable character on in their journeys through space and time uh, what do you see as the the benefit of uh, having that kind of fluidity and uh, malleability i suppose if we're going to talk about the benefits of the fluidity we need to talk also about what does remain constant that was my next question so um, did you want to flip it do you want to start with... I, I actually think it makes sense to because if there is enough continuity that we can actually say, yes, the show has certain features all the way through, then we need to identify them and then talk about what's allowed to vary. Excellent. Let's do that then. Okay. As you mentioned, you have the Doctor himself, or yes, as of last year, herself, who is apparently a human being, but as we find out very soon, is not in fact a human being. And 
doesn't exactly have any obvious superhuman powers, or at least not most of the time, <laughs> but has certainly more than a human being's knowledge and more than a human being's age. The doctors, I, I forget how early this comes up, but yes, the, the Doctor ends up being at least um, 759 or 749 or something like that. So you have the Doctor, you have at least one companion. One interesting question which we might come to is, well, two interesting questions. First of all, is it best when there's only one companion? Or, or maybe I shouldn't say is it best, but is there something special about it when there is only one companion? And the other question would be, is there a reason, a good reason, why by and large when there has been only one companion it's been female? Anyway, Doctor, Companion, and of course the wonderful TARDIS. I think actually the TARDIS is a great place to start, um, because I feel in a way the TARDIS symbolises the the essence in a way of Doctor Who. You have what at least in the 1960s was a very ordinary familiar object in London, a police box. And when you look inside it, not only is it bigger on the inside than on the outside, but it's full of amazing things. I mean, initially, it's, it, it simply has a, a console, and it's clearly alien technology, and then as the series go on, it becomes more and more elaborate, and you've got different floors, and you've got a swimming pool, and all kinds of things <laughs> come up. But when I say that this captures the essence of Doctor Who, I think it's the combination of the familiar the pedestrian and the bizarre the weird mm. i think that's i think that is key to doctor who well that that i mean it's iconic to say but that bigger on the inside premise it, it's it's not just a pithy statement it is sort of the mission statement of the program it's any anything that you see is far more sprawling and absurd and whimsical and interesting than it appears on the surface. So, exactly. Yeah. And the I mean the word whimsical is very good there. This is this for instance I think differentiates Doctor Who immediately from Star Trek. Star Trek, perhaps because it's American, is much more straight laced, much more serious, to be blunt, I want to say much more humorless than Doctor Who. Star Trek fans will assassinate me for that, I know, but still, yes, the whimsical, um uncanny, bizarre quality that is Doctor mm. Who, I think, is it, it defines it right from the outset. It's willing to embrace different. its silliness. Like, it, it, it knows that there's an, some absurdity to its premise and leans into it rather than sort of getting all sort of stuffy and self-conscious about Indeed. it. Indeed, yeah. To me, that is the defining feature of Doctor Who um, all the way through. Um, I, I think the most recent series keep that. And then, as for the male ability, well, what elements can change? I mean, first of all, it doesn't actually have to be science fiction. Mm-hmm. This seems to have been somewhat lost sight of um, in more recent decades, but um, certainly when this show first started, you had some episodes that were completely free, I mean, apart from the TARDIS itself, completely free of any science fiction elements. You had one set during the French Revolution, mm. uh, one set during the Crusades. If I understand correctly, I think they did have a remit where it was, you know, there would be a sci-fi story or in the future, or dealing with aliens or something, and then there would be a history story. Uh, that and may then be right. the next one yeah. would... I'm yeah. not sure. I don't know enough about the history. But, but yes, you had that, at least to start with. And I think even, certainly, when we get to Tom Baker, the, the Doctor who's most familiar to people of my age, the early stories in Tom Baker, they always have science fiction elements, but a lot of them, most of them, actually, in the earlier episodes, are set very much on a familiar planet Earth, often in the countryside, and... And precisely what's both frightening and also funny, um, depending on how it's done, is that combination of the familiar and the ordinary and the, the unusual.
unusual, the science fiction-y and whatnot. Well, certainly the John Pertwee, I think it was a budgetary constraint, but they were <laughs> very localised to <laughs> Earth, weren't they? they was... Well, they, they came up with this yes thing about the TARDIS not being able to travel for a time because yeah. the Time Lords had disabled it. And it. <laughs> I mean, look, I actually think it led to some of the very best stories. Mm. It's, it's sort of central to his character, too, because he, obviously this is just fan projection onto it, but it, it kind of justifies why he's so obsessed with Earth. Because he was abandoned there. You know, he's stuck on the planet for a couple of years. Who knows how long, actually. But for a couple of years, he was its protector because he couldn't get off it. So Mm. so it kind of explains why he keeps hanging around, you know, for generations Mm. afterwards. Um, So how about, uh, now that we're talking directly about the character, what what are some of those pivotal traits in the character, him or herself, that, you know, you're talking about a character that's been refracted through at least 13 different distinct performances, different Mm. actors have brought a different conception to the role. What are some of the elements that exist in every performance of the role? I think something that needs to exist, how successfully different actors have managed this is a question, is a certain kind of authority. I don't, maybe authority isn't quite the right word, but look, partly this is purely for the sake of small children. Mm. When things get frightening, they need the reassuring certainty that, That's yes, good, the doctor's yeah. in control, which, again, in some of the stories, is not based for some time on what's actually happening. It's simply based on the fact that the doctor is not being nettled by things <laughs> while his companions are. <laughs> so I think, I think that's very important. Obviously, there needs to be a certain eccentricity I mean, I say needs. Why do I say needs? I think at this point, needs. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do want to say needs. Yeah. I'm just stopping to wonder why I immediately say that. But okay, there, I think there does need to be some kind of eccentricity, whatever form that takes. Yeah, um, even in the most straight-laced kind of version of it, I, I think you could point at like a Christopher Eccleston as mm-hmm. a, you know, well, no, this he just looks very normal. But he was still prone to silliness and yep, absurdity. And... Yes, indeed. I mean, William Hartnell... The original Doctor. Crusty. Well, exactly, and irascible. That was his chief <laughs> eccentricity, for want of a better word. And um, I mean, in the in the three Doctors, um, he has a line addressing his two subsequent reincarnations, um, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, where he says, so this is what I've become, a dandy and a clown. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair enough. Um <laughs> I think the clown was meant to be Patrick Troughton. Troughton, definitely, yes. yeah. Um, There's a whole Charlie Chaplin vibe to his performance that I adore, but yeah. Yes, no, that's delightful. Anyway, so, well, yeah, we can sort of, variations on the theme, but that's, yeah, I'd say there, eccentricity of some sort has to be there. Authority, Authority, eccentricity, yeah. Would you say kindness? I always find I'm struck, and, and what I admire the most in The Doctor is kindness. There is definitely kindness. I think sometimes, they experiment with this a bit, sometimes... There is an odd aloofness yes. in the Doctor. I, I actually think it's something that they were planning to... Sorry, this is going deep no, into no, the weeds, yes. but I think it was something they were planning to do with Colin Baker, was make him so unpleasant so that they could cycle back around to him being kind of kind and lovable, mm. kind of you know peeling away that jerky behaviour that he began with mm. to, to kind of get to the character beneath him. But they didn't... Frankly, I think the writing was bad, but also I, I, I think whatever their trajectory was got a little waylaid mm. in the execution whereas i think they tried it again with peter capaldi oh, and, yes. and i think they were, mm. they were much more successful in that you know he starts off very snarky and not aloof but but 
just impatient and then they reveal that he's actually you know, got this limitless bounty of kindness and generosity and um, love really well that became clearer as the series went on but i think initially if anything what i'm thinking of here is again the first dalek story not just the first dalek story the very first episode after ian and barbara the school teachers of the doctor's granddaughter the <laughs> unearthly child exactly yeah. um after they've followed Susan home and discover, gosh, she lives in this police box, and they go into the box and they discover, gosh, it's bigger on the inside, etc. They are then trapped. And when they discover that they can't get out, I remember this very vividly, William Hartnell's doctor, his first reaction is simply to laugh at them. (laughs) And then off they go. And then I don't... No, the Daleks is not the very next story, but it's very close after that. Is it not the next? I thought it was. No, it's not the very next one, I don't right. think. No, it's possible I'm making a mistake there, but whether it is or not, it's very soon it's afterwards. Very, yeah, very and, and yes, they have an early conversation, Ian and the Doctor, where Ian is saying, look, Doctor, see it from our point of view. You've uprooted us violently from our own lives. You forced your way into the ship, young man. <laughs> but it gets worse after they've arrived. There's a point where Barbara gets separated from the rest of them the Doctor and Ian and Susan meet up and they discover, oh, we're in a, a place that's contaminated by terrible radiation levels. We've got, And the Doctor says, we've got to go. And he is initially actually indifferent, it seems, to the fact that this means leaving Barbara behind. And he's forced by... Oh, yes. Yes, he's forced by Ian. As Ian says, it's time you faced up to your responsibilities. So, yes, I mean, actually quite yeah, scary stuff in a way as far as the Doctor's character goes. And they... Um, yeah, as you went on, that, that sort of went into the background a bit. Yeah. But um, but it comes back every now and again. I mean, in Tom Baker, and of course Tom Baker, the most genial fellow imaginable in so many ways, but in The Invasion of Time, do you remember this story? Terrible name for a story, but <laughs> it's where he goes back to Gallifrey with Leela, six-parter. Yes. Um, yes. And to begin with, at least, again, he's actually behaving very oddly. I mean, there's a point where Leela actually said, Doctor, what's happened to you? He's, you know, he's saying expel her, Leela, from the city. And he actually, at one point, threatens, I'm going to have canines stun you. Yikes. Yes, no, it's really... And again, I mean, for her and for you know, children watching this, it's actually quite, well, what's going on? That's well, he was a good guy. So every now and again, yeah, they, they cycle back to this, this alien, more than aloof, alien quality about the Doctor. What is the resolution of that? Like, why is he behaving like that? I'm trying to remember. He, he gets into... He's a conflict with a, he's another playing Time a, Lord. He's playing a game. He's he's being... I mean, it's a bizarre story. It's not one of the better stories. Mm. He, he's, he's been... I seem to remember there's like a crystal confrontation at the end or something. They're in like a well, another plane th- there are two There are two different enemies. Um, and one of them doesn't become apparent until very late in the story. There's first of all these bizarre... I, I don't know what to call them. They're, 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 they're sort of like spirits almost um, that don't have an obvious shape who um, who want to take over Gallifrey and the Doctor is playing a game with them because they can read minds mm. anyway that has something <laughs> to do with why he's behaving so oddly although it doesn't fully explain it and then later on it suddenly turns out that the Sontarans were in the background as well uh-huh. and so in come the Sontarans and, and that comes as a complete shock to the Doctor he didn't know that um, the Vardens that's the name of the um, the predecessor villains These, again haven't appeared in any other episode with good reason because they're so uninteresting so yes that's if there is an explanation it has something to do with the need right. to deceive them but I think Tom Baker deliberately plays it in such a way that you get the sense it's not simply playing a yeah. game I mean there, there is also uh, in the Sylvester McCoy years mm. they, they make a point of presenting his character as being a lot more sort of cunning and potentially ruthless than, than you think there's a sense that 
he, he's always playing this 12-dimensional chess game. That, <laughs> so he's outwitting everybody around him and is willing to kind of make sacrifices and in order to keep ahead of his enemies for the greater good. Again, there's still that kindness that propels his actions, mm. but uh, there's and certainly the way that uh, Sylvester McCoy plays it at times, there's a, a sense that there's a whole other dimension to that character that Ace and the audience mm. aren't really getting a full grasp on. Well, he certainly... I mean, I can remember two stories offhand. One is Sylvan Nemesis and the other one is um, Remembrance of the Daleks. Yes, that's when, exactly the one yes, I think of, yes. When whatever he's doing, he doesn't explain it to Ace mm. um, or to... Um, there, I think Unit or, or some, some something like Unit is involved in Remembrance of the Daleks. He, he's not plain with them about what it is that he's doing, certainly. Mm. Um, so it's not simply that there's a complicated plot. There's also concealing what it is that you're up to, even from your supposed friends. There's also, this I think they phased out after a time, the, the way that the Doctor farewells his companions. I mean, a friend of mine who is much more of a mad Whovian than I am um, once, I think, said to me, look, there doesn't seem to have been a single decent classic Who episode, farewell yeah. to a companion. He's going to dump them sometimes. Well, well, no, but it is quite literally like that often. I mean, the one that comes to my mind immediately is, um, well, no, there are two actually. One, again, is John Pert, uh, not John Pertwee, um, William Hartnell. This when he's Susan. farewelling Susan, exactly. yeah. he literally locks her out of the town. She gets no say in whether or not. Yes. Yeah. And the other one is Tom Baker farewelling the wonderful Elizabeth Slade and Sarah Jane Smith. Oh, yes. At the end of The Hand of Fear, because he, he gets a call from Gallifrey that he has to go back, and he simply tells her, I have to go back, I can't take you with me, and then he drops yeah. her off at Croydon. I mean, it, it's smoothed in one sense by the fact that this is immediately after she has been saying, I'm sick of being chased by green-eyed monsters and not having enough to eat and not enough sleep, I'm going home! <laughs> and he hasn't even heard her say this. Well, mm. well, that was, in particular, that was a farewell that even haunted the fan base so much that she returned. She's in the new series Indeed, of Doctor yes. in, in mm. order to kind of resolve that farewell a little bit. <laughs> Um, I guess we've, we've talked a little bit about what are some of the elements, the through lines to the character. Uh, what about the themes of the show? Do you see any kind of overarching concepts or ideas that the show returns to or wants to play out in its myriad forms? I mean, it's banal, but good versus evil. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Usually fairly straightforwardly, not always. I mean, protecting the Earth from aliens, from invaders. Definitely, um, yeah. I would also say protecting the Earth from humanity, too. There's a, Particularly in the <clears throat> 70s, early 80s, there's a whole lot of environmental themes that, that Oh, yes, definitely, yes. Uh, the Green Death. Yes. Do you know that one? John Pertwee. It's the last episode with Katie Manning. The last story with Katie Manning is Joe Grant. Basically, it's set in the countryside. In fact, it might even be... No, it's not... It's not maybe it is in Wales, but at any rate, it's in the countryside. There's a... A corporation there, a company that it turns out is up to no good. But but, but it's not doing anything supernatural. It's simply... I mean, again, actually, this is one story where, yes, there is nothing... Uh, sorry, not supernatural, nothing alien. There's nothing alien going on. They're, they're disposing of waste that they're pretending doesn't even exist under, under the ground. And it leads to the breeding of gigantic maggots, which um, spread disease... Yes, the maggots are hilarious. I've been, I've been told that actually um, the maggots literally were condoms filled up with something or other and swollen to gigantic proportions so that they, um, you know, they look like giant white sausages or something. Anyway, <laughs> and so, yes, very much an, an environmental conscious story. Mm. It's um, not the one I thought of, but yes, I vaguely remember the maggots. Yeah. So, yes, that, that, that's right. Environmentalism comes up. I think 
Look, to be honest, again, talking about... We have to talk about the Daleks again and again with Doctor Who, of course. No, no, no. I, I'm sure the original point of the Daleks was basically, okay, this is less than 20 years after the end of World War yep. II, we'll fictionalise the Nazis. Nazis in space! Oh, yeah, no, exactly, that's what yeah. they are. But they don't remain that, do they? They, they, they I, th- I feel like the, the Daleks, the Cybermen, some of the iconic villains that have endured, every time they come back, there is a slight riff on their metaphor that makes them more interesting like they're not simply as you you pointed out they're little mutant creatures encased within horrible metallic bodies so then there's all these techno fears get get loaded Mm. into it as well that goes beyond just the racist component and the totalitarian component there's also Mm. sort of a sense of the potential horror of losing ourselves to technological advancement absolutely yes Clearly, i mean that's the cybermen, more, more. The cybermen yeah, exactly yeah. Are, are the classic case of that there's also i mean something you were saying made me think of this too and talk more generally about technology and anxieties about technology yep. and, and, and living in a world where technology is taken over there's an an early-ish john pertwee story it's one of the um one of the auton stories where the autons are, are planning some dastardly plot it involves taking over plastics the Autons uh, are the mannequin kind of Yes, that's right. Yes. And apparently part of the point of that was that, and the Master is involved in this too. In fact, it may even be the very first episode involving the Master. I wish I could remember which story it is. But in any case, part of the point of it apparently was that plastic was still, as in plastic as a, as a household object, was a relatively new thing. Hmm. And of course we now take it so much for granted. But back in the, whatever this was, early 70s, very early 70s, or maybe in just late 60s, having plastic chairs, plastic this, that and the other all around you was a very new thing and the episode was partly playing on the newness, the alien quality of that. I mean, there's a scene in that, it's a great, horrible scene where literally a character is sitting in a plastic chair and it comes to life and basically swallows him up. (laughs) Is it every bit as cheesy as I hope it is? Uh, You could say that. Well, again, again, Roger Delgado, the inimitable Roger Delgado as the master is standing by and he's engineered this. And there's another character who is sort of half on his side, but half not, who's perturbed by this and, and is about to do something. And the master says, no, no, I will not tolerate his insolence. <laughs> nice. It's, it's not... What I, what I love about Doctor Who is it doesn't always fall into the classic sci-fi tropes of technology equals evil. Like, oh, no, definitely yeah, not. Like there, there are stories in which I, I think uh, the unfortunately titled uh, Robots of Death. Yes. The, um, uh, Tom Baker, he actually makes a case for the robots. Like, and, and clearly there's a whole Terminator story going on there. Terminator hadn't yet been created. Uh, Doctor Who was mm-hmm. ahead of the game. But there, there is a sense in which these robots are killing people. And But uh, he, he wants to make it clear that it's not... The robots aren't necessarily evil. That's, that's the, the, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a very good story. I mean, as you indicate, the worst thing about it is the title. <laughs> Stupid title. But no, it, it's an excellent piece of writing. The robots in that are actually rather beautiful. I yeah. mean, you know, budgetary constraints, you can say as much as you like about them, but still you have these... Yes, nice-looking robots, and who speak so gently. <laughs> you know, you have literally these scenes where a robot, you know, who's about to kill someone, knocking on the door, what do you want to kill you? I must obey my instructions. You know, this very gentle, polite way of speaking. Um, and it's made perfectly clear from the outset that robots are programmed not to kill people and mm. someone's been interfering with their programming in this case and to the end you have one good robot who hasn't been deprogrammed um, who ends up in fact sacrificing himself for the sake of, of the rest of the characters 
also, though, you have that very interesting feature of that story, the robophobia. You remember mm. this? Mm-hmm. Um, where one of the characters goes mad, basically, and the way the Doctor explains it is people who live surrounded by robots. This can happen to them because robots, on the one hand, they're humanoid, but they don't show any feelings, and it's rather like being surrounded by walking, talking, dead men. And so you actually get it into your head that that's what they are. They're the walking dead. Um, that's great. It's marvellous. Yeah. And again, it's not, it's not anti-technology or pro-technology or anything. It's simply an interesting observation about what it might be like in the perhaps not too distant future when mm. we are surrounded by robots. That's wonderful, yeah. And, and to its credit, it's, uh, the show continues to play out metaphors like that and actually look at the alternate ways in which these tropes and conventions can be approached. Mm. I, I think in, in the modern series, it's an obvious example to go to, but say the Ood. You know, they, they begin as terrifying creatures. Ah, they're murdering everyone. It's very much like the robots mm. of death. But uh, they they turn out to be incredibly sympathetic species that in returning to them a, a series or two later, they're actually indentured servants that just want freedom. And, mm. and there's this beautiful ending to their story, or at least as far as their story's been told, where they're granted that chance to have autonomy, and it's just exquisite. Again, it's it's very much about racism and mistreatments of migrants, etc. But it, it's incredibly resonant because they can present them in both ways, both mm. as something terrifying and something beautiful, so that you can walk across the the reformation of that metaphor as the audience and and see it from all the different sides. Mm. It's, but I do love that the show has, has that capacity because it lasts for so long, mm. uh, because it can return to monsters and creatures and themes. Uh, it actually gets to play out in this multi-form narrative, multiple strands of the same ideas and, mm. and return to them, revisit them, uh, re-examine its own behaviour and its own conception of how it maybe presented these ideas in the past. Mm. Perhaps I, I should get to the most simplistic and in some ways asinine question, but who is your favourite Doctor and why? What, 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 what do you think that that Doctor captured that ties you so intimately to their performance? My favourite Doctor is Tom Baker. That's partly just because he's the one I grew up with. Right. Um, kind of my first Doctor. Partly that, but I don't think it's just that. You know, he, he is usually the favourite, um, not always. But what are some of the reasons? I think, first of all, he, he combines a number of things that are actually quite hard to combine. He is very authoritative, certainly when he wants to be. Mm. Partly because he has the most wonderful voice. Deep, rich, theatrically trained voice. And, of course, he's very tall and the, you know, the flowing head of hair. And he's able to bring real gravitas to the role when he needs to. Mm. And he does sometimes need to, of course. And at the same time, he's able to bring great humour to it. And as he himself said, I think, um, in, a, in an interview probably more than once, the way that he often approached it was... He said something about Oscar Wilde in this connection. Basically, the point was, the things that one would suppose to be serious, you play them lightly... Mm. and the things that are actually objectively quite trivial, you play them as if they were really serious. Um, That's not all that he does, but that is a kind of technique or trick, Mm. if you like, that he adopts. Keeping um, the audience off kilter, is that... Well, I I think the effect of it in his case is simply to accentuate the the weirdness of the character. Oh, no, it's two things. The weirdness of the character, but also the fact that he's in control. Right. Um, Like, he has the luxury of 
obsessing over little things because he's got the big things kind of yes, going I, I, hand. Yeah, and, and he can he can treat flippantly threats of imminent death and that sort of thing. And what else? I mean, he is he is very funny. He just has that gift, which some people do, of being funny. So all of those things are important. I mean, look, to be fair, too, he was given very good scripts yes. to begin with anyway. He, he did have a pretty golden period for a yes. while. Yes, yeah. um, f- for a while. <laughs> yes, he yes. did. No, not all of it is... Yes. No, no, but he had very good scripts, and he had some of the very best companions. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, I think Elizabeth Sladen oh. and, and, and Louise Jamison as, as Leela, that's oh, right. Oh, they, oh. they were... They were fantastic. Also, of course, he was there. I mean, so was John Pertwee. And in, yeah, in fact, I think originally also um, Patrick Troughton. But you mainly associate Unit and the Brigadier with John Pertwee and yes. the early part of Tom Baker. And and that was a lovely touch. I mean, I mean, um, Nicholas Courtney himself as the Brigadier and the whole Unit outfit yeah. was very nicely done, beautifully drawn, and they made a nice contrast with the companions actually because the. Look, we, let's face it, up to a point, the companions are there to be screaming and hopeless while the Doctor mm. rescues. Uh, up to a point, not, not, not just that, though. And also to have um, exposition barked at them. Of right? course, yeah. yes. And so it's nice to have characters like the Brigadier and, and the unit, uh, you know, people like Mike Yates and Sergeant Benton, who uh, are actually quite competent and brave and do a certain amount of good, but at the same time will be sunk without the Doctor. Yeah. There's also a, a nice contrast there when he's the unpredictable loner who, yes. who can, is sort of bouncing around doing whatever it is he does. It's nice to have that organisation, a, a a group of people who are unified in purpose and following orders yes. to, to kind of bounce those two ideas off. In fact, I, I should have meant what I said a moment ago. It, was, it wasn't quite fair. I think Joe Grant is perhaps more the kind of companion who is there to be frightened that the doctor looks after her. Yeah. Um, Sarah Jane Smith, I think, was actually meant to be a somewhat a somewhat spunkier character yeah, yeah. Um, more and, and she, and and she is and yet I think it's, it's partly a tribute to Elizabeth Sladen the actress she was able to do both at once she was able to be very vulnerable in some parts and very tough and <laughs> almost feminist one wants to say at others but, but without that seeming incongruous I mean she was able to draw the character in such a way that they work together yeah. I think that again with once they got to Leela they were trying once again to make the companion a bit tougher a bit more equal to the Doctor and I would say they actually made a mistake when they went with um, Romana. Right, okay. To, well, no, I, and I think created a companion who was the equal to the Doctor, or even in some ways even cleverer than the Doctor. A Time Lord who got a triple first as opposed to scraping through with 51%, we find out, in the reboss <laughs> operation in whatever exams Time Lords do. Now, I, I think that was a mistake because it, it undermines the point of the Doctor. I mean, whether you like it or not, he is meant to be the centre, the in more senses than one, the, the one who anchors things, who's in control, or at least is able to re-exert control. And if you have a companion who is so independent that you wonder why she, and it was a she in this case, why she would be dependent on him, it, right. um, yeah, the dynamic isn't the same. Okay, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess I guess you are right. They're not. It's not really my favourite period of... Um, no, I mean, the stories, you know, the, the, the whole, the key to time sequence, I, I've got a certain amount of affection for it, but yes, it's not one of their better uh, efforts. Mm-hmm. And, and then and then once you get Lala Ward, um, I, I think you then have a whole string of terrible, I mean, and not, not because of her, I mean, but you yeah, just have yeah. a whole string of really terrible stories, with, of course, the shining exception of City of Death. 
Yes. Just to throw in my own opinion, I unapologetically adore uh, Matt Smith. I know that's not the, <laughs> the most popular of, of choices, but I always love the contrasts in, in Doctor Who. That's like my favorite mm. thing, you know, the, the goofiness combined with that seriousness or the, the existential dread combined with silliness and the age and the youth that Matt Smith was able to collide together in his performance. I just thought was fantastic. So all, all of that. And, and also he was very, very clearly, I think he even acknowledged this. Uh, he, he was calling upon a lot of Patrick Troughton's performance mm. and I love Patrick Troughton. So the, I, I was, <laughs> all of that kind of uh, worked wonderfully together for me. How about the companions though? So we, we were talking a little bit about the companions. What, what does a companion need to have? Do you think? And what, we've already talked, I guess, a little bit about it with um, uh, Romana, but what is a negative for a, a companion? What... I mean, the companion that I think everyone loves to hate is Adric. Oh, really? Right at the end of uh, Tom Baker's time. Can you remind me? I'm actually, Adric is... Um... <laughs> yeah, young man, um, I, I don't even remember whether he's... Doesn't he blow up on a planet or something? I, I, I don't Peter remember how, how they get rid of him. No, Well, no, no, I, I actually don't know the Peter Davison story as much at all. Um, right. But I... I have a feeling that Adric gets super blown up. If he's the one I'm be, thinking that of. That may be yeah. the case, I'm not sure. I think but he um, dies rather horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that was to satisfy fans or what, but... Well, no, no, no I, I just mentioned... I mean, not that I particularly disliked him. I, I just disliked the stories he was in. But but I'm wondering offhand why it is that, yes, he, he, he is disliked by so many. Um, so, I mean, setting aside the individual qualities of actors, what diminishes a companion? Um, I can't actually straight away think of many companions I've especially disliked or mm. been underwhelmed by. Right at the beginning of John Pertwee's... I mean, I think in I think in John Pertwee's very first story, um, there's a companion who only made a couple of returns. I should have checked this before. I don't remember her name. She's a she's a doctor or, or a scientist, one or the other. Liz something, I think, is her name. Again, it's an Auton story, but the very first John Pertwee, not the same one I mentioned earlier. And once again, as with Romana, I feel as if having someone who is, I dare I say, it, too competent, um, I mean, too much like the Doctor, is is a mistake. I mean, you don't want two doctors you you want a doctor and someone who is precisely not the doctor who is yeah. a foil to the doctor now th- i mean that doesn't actually mean someone who's who's weak in fact i think it's very no, important that no. they not be weak I, I think they they managed to juggle that when they give the human companion uh, more compassion or more human empathy that the capacity and and sometimes that can be oversimplified into make it a pretty young woman who gets along with you know mm. but uh, I, I don't think that's actually uh, the most helpful way to look at it it's, it's it's more just that you know the doctor is looking at the big picture and mm. and you know the, they're the big concerns so you get the human drama more in the companion who's able to kind of empathize with the suffering that's going on more directly and and try and give the smaller scale perspective that in many cases then helps the doctor to see all of the pieces that need to come together to solve whatever the problem is but but still that it's it's something complementary as opposed to no exactly that's thing. right yes i mean the simple fact of, of romana being a time lord or a time lady i should say is in a way part of the problem you we've got one time lord we don't i mean if we want another time lord we want him to be the master yeah <laughs> or missy as it is recently yes we, we want an enemy not um <laughs> Which, once again, is why I think the, the three Doctors and five Doctor stories don't really work all that well. Has there been a good one? I'm trying to think. But I There's think also that the, one that the only one I've really seen. Oh, that. really? Is that... It's with Patrick Troughton and I think Colin Baker. Wow. But I haven't seen it. Anyway, go on. Oh, yeah, and Jamie comes back for that one as well, I think. Maybe, yes. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say, uh, one of the only multiple Doctor stories that I remember 
liking and in fact adoring is the day of the doctor david tennant matt smith uh and it was meant to be christopher eccleston but it's it's not instead it's the war doctor played by john hurt but Mm. i think that was one of the only ones because it was i mean it had a big story and it was dealing with a fundamental point in the doctor's timeline that it was you know finally exploring the the time war i think in the other cases it it becomes more of a hangout party there's not really any Mm. justification for why why there are five of them all of a sudden well they've just been brought together arbitrarily because like it just yes no i think that's right and i mean to be fair it's kind of the dream circumstance there is no other television show there's no other fiction really where you can have multiple versions of the same character who are distinct enough to kind of bounce in unique ways off each other so it makes sense that it does become a little bit of fan service. And mm. Let's just look at how cool it would be if William Hartnell talked to David Troughton. You know, um, David Troughton, what am I saying? Patrick Troughton. <laughs> David um, Troughton. There is a David Troughton, of course. David Troughton is... Son of Patrick Troughton. Oh, of course. What, what did he play? No, no, no. I don't, I don't know if he's ever been in Doctor Who or not, but he is also an actor. Uh, so, is there any particular story that you think uh, represents the best of, of Doctor Who or anything that you really enjoy that you'd suggest to somebody else to watch? It'll probably depend a little bit on who they were, but I'm just talking about some of my, my favourites. I, I expect most of these choices will be fairly standard ones anyway. Um, I've said the early Tom Baker stories are some of the best, I think. I mean, look, for me... I suppose there are two that come particularly to mind. One of them is The Seeds of Doom. Um, And there's a special reason for that, because that one frightened the life out of me when I was a child. And actually, for for literally years after that, I would have nightmares and be be frightened of the crinoid, the um, the monster in that story. So there's that one. And then The Pyramids of Mars. Ah, of course. Which is very, very good. Actually, another one of the early ones, which it's not seen on Earth, but... The Brain of Morbius, because it actually deals with a, in an interesting way with the question about the quest for immortality. Right. Because you have, on the one hand, the, the Frankenstein story, the brain of the monster Time Lord Morbius has been preserved by a sort of mad scientist kind of figure who um, is constructing a body for him out of travellers and, and also part of his servant and other things. It's all rather gruesome. And on the other hand, on the other side of the same planet, you have um, the sisterhood of Khan, who have their fire that, what does it do exactly? It, 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 it's burning inside a rock, and as a result of that, chemicals in the rock, they get an elixir out of it, which they keep drinking, and it means that they live forever. Right. Um, much less grotesque, but of course, you know, they're both actually doing the same thing. and yeah. they, they end up fighting each other, and the Doctor is more or less on the side of the sisterhood. So yes, and, and 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 in the end, he actually persuades the leader of the sisterhood that yes, this quest for immortality is um, is mistaken, and yes, death there should be an end, as she ends up saying herself. Okay, that and says then, the guy who never dies. But, uh, <laughs> well, no, he does. Yeah, after, I know. Well, true. <laughs> theoretically, after twelve regenerations, but uh, let's not get into that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but I do love the talents of Wen Chiang. <laughs> I, I want to be careful to whom I recommended that nowadays because, of course, I'd never dare make something like that today. But uh, but it is delightful. Uh, I mean, the other one difficulty, of course, about introducing Doctor Who to people nowadays is that, yes, I, I think people brought up on top-notch special effects will just watch these early episodes of Doctor Who and think, who are you kidding? Yeah, shonky is, sets and the... Well, and in the case of you know, famous story about the Pyramids of Mars, the scene where Sutek stands up in his tomb, is released and is about to walk out, and you actually see a hand holding his chair quickly disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
but the thi- but this is what's sad because of course growing up as a child none of this made the slightest impression yeah. on me as yeah. far as I'm concerned no look this is real and frightening and I also even think there's a kind of advantage to the um, you know the, the shoestring budget that the BBC had that because it forced them to focus on I would say the two things that actually did matter good scripts and good acting and you got that in spades um, for well, a long time, the good, yeah, for a long time. There, there are periods where the scripts are oh, yeah, sure, dodgy as hell. But uh, you're you're right. I actually do think that that's uh, one one of the most beautiful aspects of the show is that it didn't just work with its limitations; it actually transformed itself and elevated itself beyond those limitations, folded them into its very DNA. I mean, even even just the, the fact that there are multiple Doctors, you know, mm. that was a limitation of the show. William Hartnell could not continue to do the role, so rather than just replace him with some stand-in or similar actor who would perform essentially the same role they went screw it get another actor in he's an alien just turn it into a different element and the audacity of that meant that it became this whole other wonderful plastic changeable irascible thing the same thing with special effects you know they they would any anything that they could afford they would uh, utilize anything that they could disguise you know anything that they could fold into the mechanics of it they would use and and there's a a a wonderful rebellious is the wrong term but but it's um slapdash makeshift kind of quality that feels so much more unique and organic Mm. uh in there than Star Trek had had a similar kind of conceit, but again, it's it's far more sort of serious. It, mm. It's it's not it's not about to embrace the goofiness that Doctor Who would unashamedly run straight toward. Yes. Um, and mm. and again, it it makes it more wonderful because of that. I would say that you know you've got New Who now, which sometimes the special effects can be very dodgy, but for the most part, maybe from Matt Smith onwards. They hold up surprisingly well mm. um, visually. That that can be an entry point for people. Then once you've got them hooked, then go back to the to the classics. Possibly it depends on as I say. It depends on what people are interested in too. I mean, I mean, people. I suppose for someone who wasn't much of a science fiction person in general, and, and I I wouldn't say I am in general. Again, some of the earlier episodes are worthwhile because they're not primarily about science fiction. Mm. Um, they're only accidentally about that. And, again, the, the early Doctor Whos especially, and, and I think, sorry, I'm sort of saying two things at once. No. One obvious but important thing about the earlier classic Whos, it's sometimes said, is quite simply that it went on longer. You didn't have single or occasionally double episode continuation of stories. It was you know, normally four episodes at least, sometimes six, and, of course, yeah. in William Hartnell's time, even seven or as many as 12 or 13 sometimes. And I think that that is important because, of course for the sake of things like development of character and plot and all the rest of it, you need that time, that space. And much of the time, interestingly, I think, in the, for instance, again, in the early Tom Baker or the late John Pertwee stories, the monsters are not the most interesting feature. It's the characters, including the evil characters. The Seeds of Doom, I mean, the monster in that is the crinoid, this alien plant that takes over human bodies and turns them into plants, which is a a terrifying concept, and that's why it frightened me so much. But the great villain of it is a human being, Harrison Chase, the millionaire who owns a wonderful mansion filled with plants, and he's obsessed with plants. And he is, he's like a, a mar- villain. Yeah, exactly. And he is a marvellous character, whose point of view, as Tom Baker said in a later um, thing that he did, is actually quite understandable. Yes, look, we're human beings, we're just animals generally, we're just parasites. Plants can do without us. 
<laughs> um, and we depend on them, so why shouldn't we have a world with just plants? And the other, the other example, again, coming back to the Daleks one more time, in Genesis of the Daleks, um, which is one of the very best Dalek stories, I would say. The, is it with Davros? Exactly, the yeah. very first Davros story. And Davros is a wonderful villain. Yeah, not a Dalek himself, although almost, and yeah, and beautifully played by Michael Wisher. Mm. Yes, and, and the fact that you, you have these wonderful characters that, that you only can have when you've got at least four episodes in which to see them do things over a certain length of time. I, I think that's... Yeah, but people who are interested in drama, character-driven drama, I would say, by all means, start with some of the late John Bertwee or early Tom Baker stories. This uh, maybe, maybe this is in poor spirit, but where has it failed? Where, are the, there, are which ones? The, Doctor Who. Doctor where, Who, where, yeah, where has it failed? Yeah, can, can you think of moments where it's oh. kind of gone off track or it's um, uh, missed the mark? I mean, the most obvious one that, that I would throw out there is, uh, and I've already mentioned it, Colin Baker. That's That's... Probably a dead horse to, to I mean, beat now. But, I've um, only seen a small number of, of the Colin Baker stories and it never interested me enough to, to bother doing much more. I actually admire what they were attempting to do. I think the execution was just so poor. And this isn't even really a dig at Colin Baker. I just think he had there was too much going on there. I, I think there were also, from from what I've heard behind the scenes, the BBC wasn't particularly in love with the show anymore mm. either. And so, the, you know, there was producers, issues with the producers and the script writers and budgets and all sorts of things. Uh, but I, I admire the ambition of, you know, your six mm. incarnations into the character and going to take this bold, potentially dangerous stab at remaking who he was, mm. presenting him in a new way. Again, I admire that. I just think it was really botched the way it was handled, mm. and, and there was an ugliness to it as well. I mean, who who was he traveling with then? Um, Perry, Perry, Perry. Uh, there was. I do. Um, oh no, hang on. There was a Perry, but I forget whether she was with Colin Baker or not. Um, I think she was there at the beginning. She was at the end of uh, the Peter Davison, and of course, you go through this um, sort of amazing sacrificial death of Peter Davidson and then Colin Baker wakes up and starts choking her like it's the most sort of aggressive crazy beginning to that that character that you could possibly have very mm-hmm. again confronting and scary for for a kid and I get what they were going for but it's just not you don't want to see the, mm. the doctor physically and over the course of that year psychologically abusing his uh, companion it's not yeah n- not the most enjoyable no uh, mm. way to introduce a character i think an area where the show can fall down and I, I think sometimes has fallen down is where it tries to do too much or tries to in effect i would say tries to be something other than doctor who and i'm thinking partly of the more recent seasons but but one one that illustrates what i have in mind if only in a small way is the um i'm pretty sure it's a david Tennant story where you have the daleks experimenting with turning a human being into a dalek and you have the resultant whatever the word here is uh, uh half half dalek half human it's, uh, it's in new york in the daleks in new- yeah. yes exactly um who who starts, yeah, exp- apparently has a conscience or, or something like a conscience and starts expressing views about the Daleks. You know, maybe we should stop being Daleks in effect. <laughs> but that's the point. And to be honest, when I watched that and when one of the other Daleks eventually says, you are no longer a Dalek and he gets exterminated, I thought, yeah, exactly, good riddance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, th- I'm sorry. 
this is not the Daleks and it's not Doctor Who. Mm. I, I, I feel like you know, it was a misguided effort to sort of, you know, go into some deeper, murky, more ambiguous territory. And you just think, look, there's a place for that. Even in Doctor Who, there's a place for that, but this is not the way to do it. Yeah, I, I do think you're right, particularly in that in that period, there is an impulse to change the rules just because, or, mm. or to, to attempt to load in metaphor that doesn't really fit. Well, and also, I, I think part of it comes from the, in a way, laudable and certainly understandable desire to avoid formula. Mm. And of course, the fact is, with a show like Doctor Who, the formula is essential. Of course, we want the Daleks recurring every now and again, and we want them to be Daleks, which is to say completely black and white villains yeah. who are just out to exterminate and take over. There again, are you know, there are better and worse, more and less subtle ways of dealing with the Daleks, but still, you, but, but, but don't tamper with the basic formula. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. one, I think one of the most elegant presentations of the Daleks ever was in the new series with Christopher Eccleston where they actually again it was, it was a little heavy-handed but the, the way in which they were comparing those two figures and that the, the doctor this endlessly compassionate selfless hopeful mm. figure uh, we haven't really talked about hope but I think that is another um, defining trait of the doctor that I admire endlessly but he is incredibly hopeful suddenly he's confronted by a dalek and just wants it dead like mm. suddenly he, he's just furious and it, this is a monster it needs to be destroyed and it's striking the similarities that they play out within that that story and without being too heavy-handed without changing what the daleks are mm. but allowing this new aspect of the doctor to be presented and, sure and, and again that, that's mm. not something that it is something they alluded to in the past. I think there's a Tom Baker story where he... It's Genesis it, of the Daleks. Yeah, I think he plays with he, that idea. Well, he's he's got the opportunity to blow up the room where all of the embryo Daleks, before they've actually become Daleks, are being nurtured or something like that, and, and he has a, a crisis of conscience about it. You know, genocide. <laughs> yeah. And doesn't end up doing it. Hmm. I guess I, I should just ask, we've sort of been dancing around it, uh, what do you make of, of New Who in general? Is there any any particular aspects of the new incarnation um, of the show that you... Look, I, I, I quite enjoyed... Um, I was about to say Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> I, quite, I quite enjoyed David Eccleston. I very much enjoyed a lot of David Tennant. Um, I thought some of that was delightful. Actually, one of my favourite David Tennants, I think, would have to be the Agatha Christie story. Really? It's not one that's often pointed to. As well, it, to me, it actually, um, it's very, I don't know whether intentionally or not, but it is very classic Who in one respect. You know, it's set in the 1920s England. Initially, it looks as if this is a pure historical drama with Agatha Christie as a character. And then you have this utterly bizarre <laughs> um, alien bee or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> And I think yes, the the juxtaposition of you know the the familiar and of course the English in particular and and the alien and the frightening that that's mm. that is Doctor Who. Matt Smith put me off partly for a very simple reason. I feel that he talks too quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I think that you know if, if you're going to talk nineteen to the dozen, you need to do it in such a way that you can still actually be understood. <laughs> and I would often find watching that I'm sorry, I do not understand what you're saying young man and <clears throat> so yeah as I say for that reason amongst others I, I basically stopped watching it after Matt Smith I, I saw a little of David Capaldi I found it rather heavy handed and yeah, oh so really I, Peter Capaldi yeah no look I, I mean I quite like Peter Capaldi in general as an actor but yes I heavy handed is the word that comes to mind on the basis of very limited I must say exposure to the to his 
Doctor Who end. Might have been yeah, so season eight, I would No, m- maybe. And so, yeah, I, I'm more or less tuned out. But look, I always felt a certain reservation about the new Who because partly for the simple reason I mentioned earlier, that I think the fact that the stories are sh- generally shorter and mm-hmm. therefore snappier, racier, and, and also, I mean, this is partly a, um, a general feature of television nowadays compared to the 1970s. It, it's less like a stage play turned into a, you know, there's, there is simply less dialogue and such dialogue as there is is much more soundbiting and that gets on my nerves. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a total reactionary when it comes to <laughs> that, I'm afraid. <laughs> much, um, much more enjoy sort of lingering in the serial for a few years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's, that, that's really all I can immediately say about the, the, new, the new who as opposed to the old. Do you have a favourite Do story? I? I... It might be just the entirety of the fifth series. That's such a stupid answer, but it's it's the first season of Matt Smith, so you, you won't That's understand okay. what he's saying. But uh, it was the new showrunner of, of Stephen Moffat uh, before he... he and I, I love Stephen Moffat's uh, writing, but there were some years there where it was a little too in love with its own ideas but I I did feel like that the first season of Matt Smith had such an elegant take on the idea of time travel itself that was Mm -hmm. one thing that I think uh, alongside Stephen Moffat had this fascination with fairy tales and the the fairy tale that is Doctor Who and so he for one year he had this brilliant idea of the, the Doctor as being almost like this magical sort of fairy or wizard or something that takes you off on an adventure and so through the eyes of amy pond you get taken into this world and playing with these ideas of time where mysteries that hadn't happened yet and meeting people who uh, there was a love story going on in there that was going in reverse because the the woman uh, river had already lived out this love story but she was meeting the doctor at the beginning of his experience of this time so all these amazing flips on expectation all building up to this explosion that was going to restart the universe and Everything in that season I just adored. Maybe there were a couple of episodes that were shaky. But the way that it all built to its climax, I thought, was just the perfect encapsulation of what the show was capable of. All of those narrative folding back on itself and taking characters and, and the audience off in new, exciting, uh, inexplicable directions. Again, it's a cheap answer because it's an entire season rather than one story, but that would probably be it. I don't, I don't think that the show has ever really recaptured. Not that it's bad; like I, I really like it, but I, I, I think that was just a perfectly executed vision of what the show could be. Mm. Oh, I would also throw into the mix very quickly the Day of the Doctor as well. And again, that's another cheap example. You know, the movie fiftieth anniversary celebration of the Doctor. I, th- I think it's probably not the best story to show somebody who has no idea of what Doctor Who is. I, I mm. doubt that it would make much sense, but it was such a triumphant celebration and rescued the Doctor. I, I'm, I am sorry. Uh, I, I know that for some people, it, it was cheap to rescue the Doctor from committing this act of genocide against the, the Daleks, but. I like that the series rescued that element of uh, his personality that he thought he'd done it, but he hadn't actually. He was able to retain that hope and compassion and not sort of lose himself in an act of war. All, all good stuff. Well, those were some of our thoughts on Doctor Who, one of the most enduring and multi-form texts in the television medium. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. Our email is conversations at campion.edu.au. I want to thank Jeremy for joining me today. Pleasure. And we'll be back next time with another Campion Conversations. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by that trope in science fiction where robots inexplicably experience emotions. Campion Conversations is a product of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.